Welcome to the Atlantic Council Events Podcast. The Atlantic Council serves the global community by bringing together world leaders, foreign policy experts, and great thinkers to shape today's policy choices and navigate the global challenges of the 21st century. In the following program, the Atlantic Council holds its annual Distinguished Leadership Awards. Each year, the Atlantic Council honors several distinguished leaders for their versatile contributions to the strengthening of the transatlantic partnership. This year's awards took place on Monday, June 5th, 2017. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage Atlantic Council President and CEO, Fred Kemp. Uh, so did that get your attention? Um, uh, we've decided from the last couple of dinners that the only thing that would quiet this social of an audience was a drum roll and some strobe lights, uh, so it worked very well. Welcome to the 21st Annual Distinguished Leadership Awards Dinner. Please join me in welcoming to the stage General Jim Jones, former Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, Marine Commandant, National Security Advisor to President Obama, and the Chairman of the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security at the Atlantic Council. Thank you, Fred, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. What a pleasure it is to be here tonight. Uh, I have the honor of being the designated Sergeant at Arms uh, for this event, and so we will conduct the next phase of it with military precision and uh, appropriate dignity. So ladies and gentlemen, please stand for the presentation of the flags of the United States of America, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and Montenegro, the Republic of Montenegro, the 29th and newest member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization Alliance as of 12.15 today. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Please be seated. It's now my uh, great honor and distinct pleasure to welcome to the podium for the first time as the newest member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the Prime Minister of Montenegro, His Excellency Mr. Dusko Markovic. Please welcome the Prime Minister. Ladies and gentlemen, dear friends, good evening. Prije 50 godina jedan Amerikanac je izgovorio rečenicu koju je zapamtio čitav svijet. Some 50 years ago an American uttered a sentence that the entire world remembers very well. Ovo je mali korak za čovjeka, ali ogroman za čovječanstvo. Dozvolite mi danas na ovaj istorijski dan za Crnu Goru da parapraziram riječi Nila Armstronga. Allow me to rephrase on this historic day for Montenegro the words of Neil Armstrong. Ovo je mali dan za Ameriku i njene saveznike, ali veliki dan za Crnu Goru. This is a small step for the United States and its allies, but a great day for Montenegro. Čast mi je da...
čast mi je da budem večeras sa vama i takođe čast da iskoristim priliku da čestitam Atlanskom savjetu, da se istovremeno zahvalim i Atlanskom savjetu i svim američkim prijateljima na snažnoj podršci Crnoj gori i povjerenje u Crnu goru na njenom istorijskom putu. This is a great day and I'm very honored to be here and this is a great occasion also to thank the Atlantic Council and all of our friends from the United States for all the support that they have given us on our path. Mi smo danas postali 29. članica NATO-a. Mi ćemo pokazati da smo sposobni i spremni da preuzmemo odgovornosti koje proizlaze iz članstva. Today our country became the 29th member state of NATO and we will prove that we are trustworthy and capable of assuming all the obligations and commitments stemming from the membership. Ali ono što želim večeras posebno da kažem, strateško, trajno i vječno prijateljstvo Sjedinjenih američkih država i Crne Gore želimo da oplemenimo novim sadržajem, ekonomskom saradnjom. I especially like to emphasize tonight that we would like to enrich our already good, our precious partnership and friendship with the United States, which will hopefully be eternal, by excellent economic cooperation. Crna Gora nije danas samo lijepa zemlja, zemlja koja ima resurse. Crna Gora danas pruža mnoge mogućnosti za investitore. Pozivam, večeras pozivam, ne samo američke građane, nego i američke investitore da dođu da ulažu u Crnu Goru, da nam pomognu da naše razvojne resurse oslobodimo za dobro naše zemlje i naših građana, a da vi upoznate crnogorski prijateljski narod i da na taj način učvrstimo naše ječno prijateljstvo. Hvala vam na pažnju. Ladies and gentlemen, Montenegro is not only a beautiful country with abundant resources, we also have a lot to offer to investors. So I'm using this opportunity to invite not only the American citizens, but also the American investors to come to Montenegro to invest and thereby help us harness the potential to the fullest. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage Atlantic Council Chairman, Governor John Huntsman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, we were just back here a second ago with the Prime Minister and what a special occasion it is for all of us gathered back there to be able to comm commend him and congratulate him on this most momentous achievement today. It's a huge honor to be with the country of Montenegro, now the 29th and newest member of NATO. And it's a pleasure to be with all of you tonight, I must say. We're also honored tonight to have with us Nikos Anastasiades, President of Cyprus. And we're truly delighted that Vice President Mike Pence will join us shortly to offer some remarks. Now, ladies and gentlemen, excellencies, dignitaries, friends, my two daughters who are here. I have to say, a long time ago, I, I ran for higher office to have a podium just like this. So for me, this, this is a really great occasion. But I, I want to tell you how thrilled and excited we are to have you to the 2017 Distinguished Leadership Awards. It's going to be a very special evening tonight, and we're delighted that you're with us. So along with honoring five truly exceptional individuals, Tonight's celebration marks the 70th anniversary of the creation of the Marshall Plan. 
one of the most visionary foreign policy initiatives in U.S. history, which helped lay the foundation for Europe's reconstruction following World War II. Now, the Marshall Plan, which Madeleine Albright spoke eloquently about just today, alongside a host of institutions created by the United States and its allies, would evolve into the global rules-based system that has produced one of the greatest periods of peace, prosperity, and progress in world history. Now, in a similar sense, we at the Atlantic Council have been motivated and inspired by the belief that the United States must pull together with its like-minded friends to shape the future, recognizing that if we fail, we cede the way to less benevolent actors or chaos filling the void. Suffice it to say, today is a very important moment for the Atlantic Council. We've never been in a stronger position to lead out and make more of a difference. So thank you to our community of dedicated experts and those like many of you who are here tonight who help to support them. Tonight we recognize the accomplishments of five outstanding individuals. We pay tribute to their leadership, their commitment, and their character. And above all, their ability to, to remain resilient, I know Adrian Arsch loves that term and so do I, to remain resilient during challenging times. They are Jen Soldenberg, the 13th Secretary General of NATO who embodies the Atlantic Council's mission through his unwavering commitment to advancing freedom, democracy, and international cooperation. Princess Haya bint al-Hussein, who on behalf of the people of the UAE is recognized for her principled advocacy as the voice for vulnerable populations around the world and for her efforts to bridge cultural, religious, and national divides. My good friend William C. Ford, Jr., executive chairman of Ford Motor Company, for his astute vision in helping Ford embrace the rapid pace of change within the automobile sector, including his commitment to sustainability, community engagement, and next generation leadership. Admiral Michelle J. Howard, Commander U.S. Naval Forces Europe and Africa, for her military service as well as for her inspiring journey as a first African-American and first woman to be promoted to four-star admiral and to assume the position of Vice Chief of Naval Operations. As a Navy family, Mary Kay and I are particularly pleased to have you with us here tonight, Admiral. Renee Fleming, award-winning soprano, one of the most acclaimed singers of our time, for her moving musical talent, which continues to bring classical and opera music to new audiences, earning her the National Medal of Arts and four Grammy Awards. Finally, as many of you know, this will be my last awards dinner as chair of this terrific institution. I'm deeply honored to have held this position for the past three and a half years. I've been humbled by it. I've learned from all of you. I've enjoyed every minute, following in the footsteps of some of the very special people in this audience, one of whom is with us here tonight, General Jim Jones, our former chair, chair of the board. And I just want to thank Jim publicly once again for his leadership 
and ongoing commitment to this Atlantic Council. He's a very special individual, and I just want to give him a round of applause. I want to recognize uh, my wife, Mary Kay, uh, and daughter, Marianne, both of whom are here tonight for their support of many uh, Atlantic Council events as well. Of course, none of this would be complete tonight without one fearless leader by the name of Fred Kemp. Now, some, some call Fred president and CEO, some call him unkempt, which was his name in high school. I do know this, he has propelled this organization forward in ways that most would have deemed absolutely impossible a decade ago. Fred is without question the best policy entrepreneur I know. Now, we come from rival public high schools in Salt Lake City. Fred went to Skyline High School, I went to Highland High School, so it's really hard for me to compliment him at all. But it's all true. Fred operates with a level of vision, energy, and focus that is absolutely extraordinary. Fred, thank you for your leadership, for working tirelessly to advance the Council's mission, and for convening this absolutely remarkable community here tonight, which in many ways is a tribute to you and your lifetime commitment to foreign affairs. Ladies and gentlemen, Fred Kemp. Not so fast, General, uh, General Huntsman, good heavens. Governor Huntsman, not so fast, not so fast. Come on up, come on up. Um, the, um, uh, so um, we have a little bit of a surprise uh, for you in this final Distinguished Leadership Awards dinner. Well into the fourth uh, year of your remarkable leadership, uh, your chairmanship has come at a time of significance for the world, for the Transatlantic Alliance, for a country, and of course for the Atlantic Council itself. So maybe you should look at the screens a little bit, and maybe the audience should as well. You've traveled the world as our chairman, rubbing shoulders and exchanging views with some of this planet's leading statesmen. In doing that, you have embodied the thoughtful, nonpartisan, purposeful, entrepreneurial, and results-oriented ethos of the Atlantic Council. You build partnerships among division. You remain principled and practical in seeking solutions when partisanship is often the course of least resistance. Your cool analysis and steady strategic thinking have been a north star for this organization and for me in many, many private conversations about the best way forward. During a time when the speed and surprise of daily events is so easily distracting. What I'd like to share with this intimate gathering uh, is another secret to your success. You deeply care about the people you work with. It was characteristic of Governor Huntsman, this swan song of his chairmanship, after all he's accomplished with the Atlantic Council, 
that he took so much time to salute me. That's just the way he is. But you have been an inspiration not just for me, but for the most junior of our staff, for the interns, up to the directors and the vice presidents. Taking time to support their projects, to provide advice, and offering the most valuable things of all, your time and your boundless wisdom and boundless energy. Oh, perhaps I'm wrong. Maybe that wasn't really uh, the most valuable thing of all. Uh, it actually could be Mary Kay. <laughs> um, Mary Kay, thank you for being such an effective and delightful Atlantic Council ambassador. And in the audience, Mary Ann and Gracie, thank you so much for all your presence and all the, your, the rest of your family's involvement in what we do. Uh, and speaking of ambassadors, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to talk about that here. Um, uh, what I meant to say, Governor, um, is that we salute you for all you have done for your country, uh, our country, and our cause, and all you will do in the future. You personify the Atlantic Council's ethos of principled, untiring engagement not shying away from the very toughest of challenges. And with that, I would like to salute you and Mary Kay and invite all in the audience to join me in doing the same. Thank you. Uh, I, I see it every day. I see it in the offices. I see the way that Governor Huntsman has touched so many people, so thank you for allowing us to salute him tonight. And if he thinks he's going to get out of his obligations to the Atlantic Council, he's got another thing coming. Um, uh, you're going to hear a lot tonight about this 70th anniversary of the Marshall Plan and the context for our work. So I'll keep my own comments short. The fundamental challenge we face today is similar to the Council's founding mission. How do we inspire and sustain U.S. leadership along partners and friends around the world to secure the future. What's dra dramatically different is the context. While the post-war World War II years, as we were founded nearly 60 years ago, were shaped primarily by a superpower competition, the forces at work now require the Atlantic Council to operate globally and across diverse functional areas to address a multiplicity of challenges and opportunities, and that's what we do across our 11 programs and centers. Against a host of headwinds, the Atlantic Council galvanizes communities, the public sector, private sector, and civil society leaders to refresh the international system, bring in new rising voices, and advance stability, prosperity, and freedom. A little more than a year ago, when we last gathered for these awards, the United Kingdom had not yet voted to leave Europe. NATO was focused on its renewed momentum with troop deployments in Poland and the Baltics. Turkey had not weathered an attempted coup. France had not yet suffered its terrorist attacks in Nice uh, and Paris, nor the UK in Westminster, Manchester, and London. This just scratches the surface of the unanticipated disruptions of the past year. While Secretary of State George C. Marshall's words were spoken 70 years ago, they ring true today, and I quote, said George Marshall, I think one difficulty 
is that the problem is one of such enormous complexity that the very mass of facts presented to the public by the press and radio make it exceedingly difficult for the man in the street to reach a clear appraisement of the situation. Uh, I, I urge you all to read that speech from 1947 because it seems so timely today. In response to this global uncertainty, we do a lot. But we also launched this year our newest center, the Adrian Arsh Center for Resilience, acknowledging that resilience, the capacity of a system, a community, and individuals to bounce back stronger after major shocks is an antidote to these turbulent times. The Arsh Center for Resilience will strive to strengthen our ability to respond to future shocks, both natural and man-made. With the ever-capable Christine Warmuth at its helm as director, newly joining the Atlantic Council and former Undersecretary of Defense, the center will break ground on this crucially important subject through original research and innovative approaches. Please join me in thanking Adrian yet again for what she does for the Atlantic Council and, Chris and welcoming Christine. the Atlantic Council are the heirs to a commitment not only to sustain but to improve the world and to adapt and advance the international system that has produced so much good for so many over the past 70 years, arguably the most peaceful, promising, and prosperous in human history. And that brings me back to our gathering tonight and you. By being with us this evening, you've taken a place in our community to support the work we do and affirm the values that drive it at a historic moment. And look around you. What an amazing community this is. You are more than 700 guests from more than 55 countries, heads of state and government, former heads of state and government, members of Congress, uh, senior officials, ambassadors, and countless business executives, media, media and civil society leaders. In particular, it's my privilege to welcome Raimonds Bergmanis, Minister of Defense of Latvia, Mikhail Yanalidze, Minister of Foreign Affairs of Georgia, Sirdan Darmanovic, Minister of Foreign Affairs of Montenegro, as well as Representative Debbie Dingell of the 12th District of Michigan, also known as Bill Ford's hometown, and Representative Diana DeJet of Colorado's 1st District. Thank you all for joining us. Finally, join me in saluting three very important groups of friends in the audience. First, and I'll ask you to stand, if I could ask all board members of the Atlantic Council and all international board members of the Atlantic Council to rise so that we can salute you. Please stand. Thank you for making my job much easier and so pleasurable. Second. If I could ask all Atlantic Council staff and program center directors and their spouses and partners to rise so that we can salute you and through you your families. You are the best and most purposeful in the business. Um, 
Finally, I'm going to ask all of tonight's co-chairs who are in the audience and people representing those co-chairs to rise as I read your names. And please hold your applause until I've listed the names. Uh, and when you hear the names of all these supporters, you'll get a feeling of the, of the incredible, incredible robustness of this community. Matt Mazonki of Airbus. Sabi Masri of Arab Bank. Bob Hastings of Bell Helicopter. Mark Allen of Boeing. Jeff Schellebarger of Chevron. Clyde Tuggle of Coca-Cola. Carl Hopkins of Denton's. Neil Blue of General Atomics. Franco Nuskeze of Georgetown Entertainment Group, AKA Cafe Milano. <laughs> Joya Johnson of Haynes Brand. Rafik Bisri of Hariri Interests. Adam Tan of HNA. Amit Oren of Ilhas Holding. General Jim Jones of Jones International Group. He actually asked me tonight to introduce him as Field Marshal and I refused. Um, Robert Schultz of KMW. William Lynn of Leonardo. Ahmad Shirai of Maroc Telematique. Mian Mancha of MCB Bank LTD. Mehmet Nazif Gunal of MNG. Marcus Dola of Penguin Random House. John Harris of Raytheon. Michael Anderson of Saab North America. Thomas Eldridge of SAIC. Tawodros Ashinafi of Southwest Holdings. Alan Pellegrini of Talis USA. Kate Friedrich of Thomson Reuters. And of course, Adrian Arst of Total Bank and executive vice chair of our board. And of course, all of our partners at Ford Motor Company. Please join me in applauding this unique and wonderful group of people. With such a community, such an assembly of accomplishment and wisdom, it is now obvious to all of you why the, United, why the Atlantic Council's capabilities have never been so robust at a moment when they are most urgently required. Thank you so much for being here. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage former U.S. Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright. Thank you. Excellencies, distinguished guests, and fellow Atlanticists, good evening. In the last few years, we seem to be observing the 70th anniversary of everything. And over the last few days, many of us have been commemorating George Marshall, who gave his famous speech at Harvard announcing a plan to save Europe on June 5, 1947, 70 years ago today. The United States entered World War II because we had to, because our immediate survival was at stake. The same cannot be said about the Marshall Plan. In 1947, the American people were weary of war and wary of new commitments. They wanted nothing more than to come home, stay home, and make the baby boom boom. <laughs> it was not self-evident that our nation would come together to support the act of enlightened self-interest, which was the Marshall Plan. But we did. 
And we did it in a way that was uniquely inclusive in design, uniquely expansive in scope, and uniquely American in spirit. We used martial aid to encourage the creation of a united Europe, which was an ambitious goal just a few years after the most terrible war in European history. We offered martial aid to the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, though the Iron Curtain had already begun to descend. Our vision specifically embraced our former adversaries, even though this was hard for many people to accept. The Marshall Plan planted seeds of transatlantic partnership that would soon blossom in the form of NATO and the cooperative institutions of a new Europe. But just as important was the expression of leadership that the Marshall Plan conveyed. After World War I, America had withdrawn from the world, shunning responsibility and avoiding risk. Others did the same. The result was the rise of great evil in the heart of Europe. But after the devastation of World War II and the horror of the Holocaust, it was not enough to say that the enemy had been vanquished and that what we were against had failed. The generation of Marshall, Truman, and Vandenberg was determined to build a lasting peace. And the message that generation conveyed from the White House, from both parties on Capitol Hill, and from people across our country who donated millions in relief cash, clothing, and food was that this time America would not turn inward. America would lead. In my own life, I have seen the difference that this kind of American leadership made. And I'm speaking not as the former Secretary of State, but as a child of Czechoslovakia born before World War II. In the early years of my life, America was absent when the Munich Agreement sacrificed my country's sovereignty in the name of appeasement. America was likewise absent when the war broke out and my family fled to England. And I can still remember sitting in the bomb shelter, singing away the fear, but worrying that we might be left to fight the war alone. And then, one day, wonderful news came from across the sea. A brave military had answered the call, and it was on its way to rescue freedom. And soon enough, America and its allies engineered D-Day, VE Day, and the Marshall Plan. By then, we had returned to Czechoslovakia, and my father was working for the democratic government as a diplomat, but his boss, Foreign Minister Jan Masaryk was told by Stalin in Moscow that his country cannot participate in the Marshall Plan, despite its national interest in doing so. Upon his return to Prague, Masaryk said it was at that moment he understood he was employed by a government no longer sovereign in its own land. It could only be a matter of months before the government was taken over by the communists. Masaryk was killed, and my family was once again forced into exile, this time sailing across the ocean to a new and welcoming home. I try to avoid seeing all of European history through the prism of Czechoslovakia, but it is true that after the 1948 coup, it did help hasten the passage of the Marshall Plan in Congress and led to the creation of NATO. So these institutions have always been a part of the fabric of my life. 
Because of the vision of the Truman Marshall generation, I was privileged to live my life in an era where America stood for freedom and opportunity across the world. It may be hard for people today who have no memory of that time 70 years ago to understand the difference that American leadership made, but it is necessary for them to try to understand because today, here in America, we are facing a great danger, and that danger is not a foreign enemy. It is the possibility that we will fail to hear the example of Marshall, that we will take for granted the institutions and principles upon which our own freedom is based and forget what the history of the past century reminds us. Problems abroad, if left unattended, will come home to America and the United States is stronger when it has allies and friends that share our interests and our ideals. For nearly 70 years, one institution has stood above all others. For nearly 70 years, one institution has stood above all others in defending freedom and securing the interests of America and its closest allies. So it's fitting that tonight the Atlantic Council should honor that institution, NATO, and its leader, Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg. It is fitting that we do so on the day that NATO officially welcomed its 29th members, Montenegro. And Mr. Prime Minister, it's very good to see you up front this evening. Uh, and, uh, and I would like to say in your native tongue, Dobrodošli. It is also fitting that we do so in the company of the family of Zbigniew Brzezinski, our dearly departed friend and a great advocate for this alliance. Tonight's honoree has served as NATO's 13th Secretary General for nearly three years, managing the alliance in the face of a renewed Russian threat and a growing instability to the alliance's south. He came to that position after a successful career in public service including more than eight years as Prime Minister of Norway. Secretary General Stoltenberg was also the UN Special Envoy on Climate Change, a position he probably doesn't boast about in Oval Office meetings today. <laughs> but he is respected by both ends of the political spectrum because he has helped to purge the alliance of any sense of complacency and prepared it to meet its full range of missions in the 21st century. He has also made a vigorous effort to dispel myths about the alliance, including the supposed lack of European commitment to NATO. Secretary General Stoltenberg has made clear that NATO's European members are fully behind the alliance and that each member must meet its obligations, including to Article 5, fully and without fail. And in case you have missed the significance of the pin I'm wearing tonight, it's Article 5, which is at the heart of the Alliance, and I wear it over my heart. In the coming months, as NATO approaches its own 70th anniversary, 
the Secretary General will be grappling with many competing ideas about NATO's purpose, direction, organization, and future tasks. The stakes are high because NATO is not just the world's most successful military and political alliance. It is also the only organization of its kind. NATO is a unique and indispensable contributor to global security. Born of Truman and Marshall, but defended and shaped for the better by Reagan, Bush, Clinton, and Obama. Its continued effectiveness and America's continued support for it should be a matter of urgent concern to us all, and especially to those of the Atlantic Council. I'm personally grateful, therefore, that the Alliance is led by a person of long experience, inspiring vision, and great energy. Please join me in welcoming my friend and the recipient of the Atlantic Council's Distinguished International Leadership Award, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. Thank you so much, uh, Madeleine, for uh, those uh, nice words and for the kind introduction. You have always been a very outspoken uh, champion of NATO, and uh, uh, as well as an inspirational uh, colleague and uh, friend. I would also like to start by thanking Fred and Damon and the entire Atlantic Council team. Thank you for this honor and uh, thank you for your steadfast leadership in support of a strong transatlantic alliance. Let me also congratulate uh, the other honorees, Her Royal Highness Aya bin Al-Hussein, William Ford Jr., René Fleming, and also Admiral Michelle Howard, with whom I recently visited uh, Allied troops in Kosovo, and who is doing a superb job as head of NATO's Joint Forces Command in Naples. This award means a great deal for me. Because I am a truly Atlanticist in uh, every sense uh, of the word. Because for Norwegians, our identity, our history, is about the Atlantic Ocean. Norway is, as you know, a very narrow strip of land with a very long coast, many fjords, a lot of mountains, and some reindeer. <laughs> and as Vikings, we used to sail the Atlantic. We were the first Europeans to discover America. <laughs> the only problem was that we left very soon <laughs> and forgot to tell anyone about our discovery. <laughs> to this day, Norway remains a maritime nation. So I have never quite understood the expression oceans apart. To me, oceans bring people together. And I know this from my own experience. In fact, transatlantic means something very personal for me and my family. 
my father was born in Norway, but my mother was born on this side of the Atlantic, in Patterson, New Jersey. <laughs> so, in a very real sense, I am the product of a transatlantic alliance. <laughs> And I spent my first two years, of my, the first two years of my life in San Francisco. <laughs> then, I can't remember so much, but uh, <laughs> it was nice. Then, growing up in Norway during the Cold War, we slept soundly at night knowing that NATO, the good guys, were there to protect us. As a young conscript, in the Norwegian army, I was trained to hold out until our Atlantic allies would come to our aid. We knew we were not alone. That is what NATO is all about. Our Article 5 commitment, one for all and all for one. And one more nation has just made that commitment. Earlier today, I was pleased to welcome Montenegro as the 29th member of our transatlantic family. And I use the word family on purpose, because like in any other family, we have our differences. But for nearly 70 years, our NATO family has risen above those differences. We have worked together for a common purpose, the peace, security, and prosperity of our people on both sides of the Atlantic. It is a unique bond that has kept our nations safe for almost seven decades. Today, our commitment to the alliance is as strong as ever, not only in words, but also in deeds. The US is increasing its military presence in Europe, and Europe and Canada are investing more in defense. We may be oceans apart, but we are also the closest of allies. This is a precious thing for all of us, but we cannot take it for granted. The attacks in London on Saturday are a tragic reminder of the challenges we all face, of the important work we have to do to overcome them, and of the values of our open and free societies. So I count on you all to help keep our alliance strong, and I thank you once again for this special recognition. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage Vice Chief of Defence Staff, Canadian Armed Forces, Lieutenant General Alain Baron. Thank you. Good evening, Excellencies, Member of the Atlantic Council, Mesdames et Messieurs, 
It gives me great pleasure to introduce Admiral Michelle Howard as the recipient of the Atlantic Council Distinguished Military Leadership Award. There's no doubt a number of you are wondering, how is it that a French-Canadian is up here introducing an American four-star admiral for the award of Distinguished Military Leadership? Well, I've had the honor to serve as Admiral Howard's deputy commander of NATO's Joint Force Command, Naples, over the past year before taking up my new post, which allows me to authoritatively say that can think of no better recipient for this distinguished award. <laughs> However, the fact that I'm, I'm up here as Canada's Vice Chief of Defense Staff is also indicative of the strong and important relationship that our nations have, as well as the value in broader shared interests and objectives that define the wider NATO alliance. It's perhaps in this context that Admiral Howard distinguishes herself as a truly great military leader. Most, if not all of you know, of course, that there are an extraordinary number of firsts she has achieved in her military career, and that she has thankfully broken through, as well as arguably broken down, a number of barriers. To do this, in and of itself, is laudable. But a true mark has been to lead others on this journey. Achieving the rank of four-star in the U.S. Navy and commanding U.S. Naval Forces Europe, U.S. Naval Forces Africa, and NATO's Joint Forces Command Naples concurrently is illustrative that she can command, lead, and navigate through the labyrinth of complexity that defines our contemporary military environment on top of breaking down barriers. Thank you. If one asks how she has been so successful in commanding concurrently both nationally, multinationally, as well as being a trailbreaker, I would say there are three defining aspects. First, her determina determination to drive her commands forward and her ability to drive through ceilings. Secondly, her vision to see what is possible, even when many of us see what's in front of us as being insurmountable. And lastly, her recognition and advocacy of collective efforts where the, sum, the sums are greater than the parts. Certainly, this underpins NATO. Again, it's my pleasure and utmost honor to introduce Admiral Michelle Howard as the recipient of this year's Atlantic Council Distinguished Military Leadership Award. Well, first of all, I need to thank the Atlantic Council for this recognition. I appreciate the work you do to promote education and engagement on the complex security challenges the transatlantic community faces. The platform that you provide allows for a free flow of ideas 
and I am truly honored to receive your Military Leadership Award. And I would also like to congratulate the other awardees. I have to especially congratulate Secretary General Stoltenberg because quite simply, he is my boss. <laughs> So I want to thank you, Elaine, Lieutenant General Parent, for the kind introduction. I know you are very busy with your new position as Ottawa's Canadian, in Ottawa as Canada's Vice Chief of Defense Staff, and I appreciate you making the effort to be with me this evening. It means a lot to me. The enduring relationship that we have forged over the years is indicative of the cooperation between the United States and Canada that we share as neighbors but also as members of the NATO Alliance. And it's very fitting to be here with this distinguished group of individuals tonight, hosted by the Atlantic Council. On this very night, 73 years ago, it was the armed forces of Canada and America, along with those of nine European countries and Australia, who prepared to assault the beaches of Normandy. June 6, 1944, would be the, be the beginning of the end of World War II. The terrible destruction of that war led political leaders to search for ways to ensure peace and security and to prevent future conflict. And seeking to formalize the alliances that had been endured during the war, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization was born. And the United States, along with 11 other nations, signed the Washington Treaty to safeguard the freedom, common heritage, and civilization of their peoples. So Articles 4 and 5 have been considered the bedrock of the Alliance, and they provide for the common defense of the members. And the territorial integrity and security of Alliance members has been maintained since the signing in 1949. And in the 68-year history of the Alliance, Article 5 has only been invoked once. The Allies decided to invoke it for the first time in NATO's history the day after the attacks in this country on September 11th. And the Allies responded resoundingly to that call. NATO formally took over operations in 2003 in Afghanistan and continues to train and advise Afghan security forces with Operation Resolute Support today. So the attacks of September 11th have brought to the fore the new security challenges that confront NATO and the rest of the world. And nearly seven decades after its inception, the cohesion of a 29-member alliance has been maintained. And the security challenges since 1949 have evolved, but the alliance's willingness to confront these challenges has been steadfast. And yet those challenges still do evolve. And during the Warsaw Summit, NATO leaders realized that many of the challenges in the alliance are emanating from the Mediterranean. Violent extremists, failed governments, mass migration, all of these have the potential to destabilize the transatlantic community. But the treaty founders had the wisdom to understand that the world would change, and the alliance had to be able to change with it. The response for the current challenges from the South may not require an Article 4 or an Article 5, but they may be better suited to Article 2, which requires the parties to contribute toward the further development of peaceful international relations 
by promoting conditions of stability and well-being. NATO many years ago recognized the partnership activity was important to the transatlantic community. And in recognizing partners in Middle East and North Africa who have to play a critical role, the Alliance's Mediterranean Dialogue was created to provide a venue for NATO to work with partners in Algeria, Egypt, Israel, Jordan, Mauritania, Morocco, and Tunisia. But partnership itself may not provide enough insight into what's happening in the South. Fragile governments coupled with the actions of illicit actors are allowing these challenges to grow in scope. And the Alliance is working to provide credible answers to these current security questions. But we need to understand the environment. And my command, Joint Force Command Naples, we've been tasked to get an understanding of the political, economic, social, and military challenges in this flank to the south. We are standing up a hub, a center at my headquarters that will focus on gathering and sharing information across a broad spectrum of partners to include private organizations, national institutions, and non-governmental organizations. The more data we collect, collate, and analyze, that means we can start the journey to predict and prepare rather than react and rebuild. So the hub will be an important step to increase our knowledge in Middle East and North Africa. And when it stands up in September, our goal will be to add value to the work already being done by NATO and our partners such as the European Union and the African Union. And ideally, partners in law enforcement and other agencies will also feed into the hub and benefit from the analysis of information. So thank you again to the Atlantic Council for your role in informing the public of the challenges that face our transatlantic community. And thank you for your support to the Alliance and your dedication. And thank you for your global leadership. And I also appreciate, once again, this award, which I accept on, be on behalf of the men and women who serve under me in my United States Command, but for tonight, for the men and women who serve under me in NATO. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage Vice Chair of the Atlantic Council, C. Boyden Gray. I want to emphasize with as much clarity as I can that this is not for me. <laughs> it is a great honor for me to be able to introduce Vice President Pence. This is a first uh, for the Atlantic Council, the first sitting vice president to appear. Um, so it's a real excitement and honor for all of us. Um, you might wonder, how did it all start? Well, I'm a lawyer, so naturally I think it's fine that he started out as a lawyer for all of you generals and admirals and diplomats in the audience. Uh, he then went to the House of Representatives, rocked to the leadership of the House in about five terms, became governor of Indiana, where he managed uh, major uh, tax cuts, launched a major uh, infrastructure reform, a lot of education reform, job training reform, all within a balanced budget. Then he became vice president. And um, so you might say, well, what, what has he done of note? And 
again, perhaps because he's a lawyer, he was deeply involved in the confirmation of our new justice on the Supreme Court. Whatever you might think of the views and the philosophy of that justice, I think you all have to admit that it was one of the most dignified, if not the most dignified, confirmation process, um, certainly in recent memory. Um, but you'll be relieved to know he didn't come here to talk about the law. I think he has a different message, so I'd like to introduce and welcome the Vice President of the United States. Thank you all. Thank you, Ambassador Gray, for that uh, kind introduction. It truly is an honor to be with you tonight as the Atlantic Council celebrates so many distinguished leaders from North America and Europe and from across the wider world. The Atlantic Council Distinguished Leadership Awards 2017. Thank you all for making this possible and for your warm welcome. And I bring greetings tonight from the 45th President of the United States of America, President Donald Trump. But before I get started, let me first and foremost, on the President's behalf, speak a word from the heart. Let me express the sorrow of our administration and all the American people for the horrific terrorist attack just two days ago against our cherished friend and beloved ally, the United Kingdom. Our hearts break for the families of the victims and the injured in London. Now, they are just the latest innocents to suffer at the hands of terrorists. Joining those who've died in Manchester, in Paris, in Istanbul, in Brussels, Berlin, San Bernardino, and too many other places, victims of barbaric acts of terrorism. They have our prayers. But more than that, our unwavering resolve. Speaking just last night, President Trump said, this bloodshed must end and this bloodshed will end. And I want to speak not only to all the Americans gathered here, but all of our friends from around the world. President Donald Trump will not relent until we protect the American people and our allies from the scourge of global terrorism. But as you all well know, this is a threat we must face together. Now is the time for NATO and this transatlantic alliance to stand united and stand strong in the face of global terrorism. Our enemies seek to divide us so that they might defeat us. But our alliance has faced far greater threats and emerged stronger and more secure. And united as allies, I say with confidence and that with faith, we will drive the cancer of terrorism from the face of the earth, and we will do so together. So let me thank all of you in the Atlantic Council for hosting this important gathering to President Fred Kempe, Chairman John Huntsman, all the Council's leadership. Thank you for your important work. For 56 years, the Atlantic Council has drawn our continents closer together, and our President and the American people are grateful for more than a half a century of work. Let me also recognize the members of the Brzezinski family who are here with us tonight. Our thoughts and our prayers 
are with you. Mr. Brzezinski was a great man, and more important, he was a good man. And America will bear the imprint of Zbigniew Brzezinski's leadership for generations to come. And let me join in a chorus of congratulations to all the recipients of this year's award. Many, uh, many who I've had the privilege to know before and greatly admire, like Admiral Michelle Howard, Her Royal Highness Haya Bint Al Hussein, Bill Ford Jr., Renee Fleming, and especially let me uh, express my appreciation and congratulations to the winner of the Distinguished International Leadership Award who in the time that I met him in Brussels and the time he spent with the president at the White House and just recently overseas, has demonstrated his role and his commitment to be an unfailing advocate for a stronger and more secure transatlantic alliance, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. You have our congratulations and our thanks. It is an honor also to be joined to be joined here this evening by the leader of the newest member of our Atlantic Alliance, Prime Minister Markovich of Montenegro. Congratulations to you and to the people of Montenegro on your accession to NATO. I had the privilege of welcoming the Prime Minister to the White House today. Uh, we had a wonderful discussion. I was very humbled to be able to share a few moments with him on the very day that Montenegro became a member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. So to Mr. Secretary General, Mr. Prime Minister, let me just, let me just say to each of those leaders that were represented in Brussels recently, President Trump so appreciated, as I do, the opportunity to meet with all of you and with NATO leaders in Brussels just a few weeks ago and over the last several months. It truly has marked this administration's beginning of a relationship that I know will only strengthen the alliance across the Atlantic in the months and years ahead. Now, the world saw firsthand just a few weeks ago President Trump embracing his role and America's role as leader of the free world. I know that under the President's leadership, uh, the United States' leadership, that I know our alliance will grow stronger, our people will be safer, and freedom will march onward. You know, it's fitting that I'm here on June the 5th. This is actually a seminal day in the history of our transatlantic relationship. Seventy years ago today, it's amazing to think that George Marshall outlined his groundbreaking plan for the United States of America to partner with Europe to rebuild its economies after the ravages of World War II and to keep lit the flame of freedom on the continent where freedom was first kindled. The Marshall Plan established a foundation of security and prosperity that reigns in Europe to this very day. Two years later, it was on that foundation that we created the North Atlantic Treaty Organization to provide for the collective defense and to protect all that we've built together. And today, under President Donald Trump, let me assure you, the United States will continue 
to build, to reach new heights of prosperity and security, and we will continue to strengthen the bonds between our nation and the nations of Europe for the benefit of our people for generations to come. As the world looked on in his meeting with Secretary General Stoltenberg in April, President Trump reaffirmed the United States' commitment to the NATO alliance and to the enduring values that we proudly share. And make no mistake, our commitment is unwavering. We will meet our obligations to our people to provide for the collective defense of all of our allies. The United States is resolved, as we were at NATO's founding and in every hour since, to live by that principle that an attack on one of us is an attack on all of us. Our unbreakable unity for freedom is our greatest strength, and a strong NATO is vitally important, especially in these trying times. Only a few days ago, speaking at the unveiling of NATO's beautiful Article 5 memorial, President Trump evoked, in his words, the courage of our people, the strength of our resolve, and the commitments that bind us together as one. And this president called on us to rise together to confront, in his words, the grave security concerns that face our historic alliance. From Russia's efforts to redraw international borders by force, to Iran's attempts to destabilize the Middle East, to the global menace of terrorism that can strike anywhere at any time. It seems that the world is more dangerous today than at any point since the fall of communism a quarter century ago. With the rise of adversaries new and old, our alliance must continue to evolve to confront the threats of today and tomorrow, especially with where I began tonight, confronting the threat and the menace of terrorism. To be clear, it should be cause for alarm to us all that we need to deploy our military to protect our citizens going to a concert, watching a marathon, or simply taking a stroll on a Saturday night, because that is not the way a free people should ever be forced to live. Already, our alliance is taking vital steps to protect our citizens and hunt down the terrorists on our terms, on their soil. NATO continues to play a leading role in equipping the government and the people of Afghanistan to confront the threat of terror. Last week's horrible mass murder attack in Kabul only underscores the importance of our mission. And in light of the President's statement in Brussels that the, quote, NATO of the future must include a great focus on terrorism, I know it's heartening to the President and to our administration to see that NATO will become a full member of the global campaign to counter ISIS and play a greater role in our shared fight against terrorism. But to most effectively confront the terrorist threat and any other challenge, known or unknown, that faces our alliance, we must all be prepared to do our part, without exception. It's encouraging that our NATO allies committed in Brussels to de develop national plans to fulfill their Wales commitment to spend 2% of their GDP on defense. We're grateful to those nations that have already taken concrete steps to increase their commitment to our common security, but we have a long way to go. And as the President said in Brussels, 
2% should be considered the bare minimum in this time of widening challenges and unknowable threats. Be confident of this. President Donald Trump will continue to work with Secretary General Stoltenberg and all our NATO allies to ensure that our alliance has the resources and the capabilities it needs to accomplish its noble mission well into the 21st century. And as we look toward the future, we cannot only look inward. NATO's open door must always remain so. For those nations, like our newest ally, Montenegro, that share our values, wish to contribute to the most successful alliance in history and seek a brighter future of security and prosperity for our nations and the world, the door must remain open. The truth is that NATO is as important today as it was at its founding nearly 70 years ago. We're bound together by the same timeless ideals, freedom, democracy, justice, and the rule of law. We share a past of shared sacrifice and shared commitment. And after all we've been through, I know we share a future too. Today, tomorrow, and every day hence, be confident that the United States is now and will always be Europe's greatest ally. Our devotion to this historic alliance is unwavering and eternal. And together, we will go forth to meet that glorious future that awaits freedom-loving people. One of my favorite quotes of Winston Churchill is actually carved into the wall of the narthex of the National Cathedral. It simply reads as follows. It's words that he spoke before the Congress in a time of great challenge in the life of this nation. Prime Minister Churchill said, and I quote, he must indeed have a blind soul who cannot see that some great purpose and design is being worked out here below, of which we have the honor to be the faithful servants. To all of us in this historic transatlantic alliance, to all the freedom-loving nations represented here, let us have that same faith. Let us be the faithful servants of freedom, and let us rededicate ourselves to the preservation of this alliance and all it stands for. Thank you for the honor of being with you tonight. Thank you for the work of the Atlantic Council. God bless NATO, all of our allies, and God bless the United States of America. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the stage Atlantic Council Chairman, Governor John Huntsman. All right, Mustang Sally. It, it was almost as if we all stood up and broke out in, in song together. It almost happened. We were right on the cusp, but unfortunately it didn't. But I have to tell you, I'm deeply honored to introduce our next uh, awardee. Uh, as a fellow Ford board member, and as the person who inspired me to buy a 662 horsepower, 5.8 liter V8 engine, Shelby Mustang with an EcoBoost environmentally friendly engine. It's an understatement to say that Bill Ford is a special friend. He is one of those rare individuals who embodies a unique synthesis of visionary leadership and creative thinking while maintaining a steadfast commitment to progress and innovation. We refer to it as the future.
As executive chairman of Ford Motor Company and great-grandson to Henry Ford, Bill bridges generations of leadership. He personifies the company's founding values and mission to improve lives through mobility and connectivity. And he does it with high ethics and with courage. Over 100 years ago, Henry Ford revolutionized transportation when he developed the Model T, transforming lives of millions of Americans and reshaping the landscape of American business. Henry Ford's Model T and the groundbreaking assembly line process by which it was manufactured opened new opportunities and consumer choice to the mass public. As Henry Ford often would say, anyone could buy a Model T in whatever color they wanted as long as it was black. Now fast forward to 2017. Bill has not only expanded Ford's color options, he's transformed Henry Ford's vision of putting the world on wheels into his own legacy and ensuring sustainable and smart mobility in an ever competitive world. Bill often says his life is guided by four great passions, family, he has four terrific kids, hockey, he's a professional hockey player, automobiles, and the environment. One might say now it's virtually impossible for the head of one of the largest global automakers to keep at least two of those passions in perfect harmony, autos and the environment. Bill, however, is the exception. In 2011, Bill gave a landmark TED Talk that overturned a century of conventional wisdom in the auto sector, that adding more cars to meet the needs of a growing population would lead to global gridlock. We needed better interconnected solutions, he argued. Bill's call for action to solve this notion of global gridlock is reflected across Ford's unique business model, which has been adapted to create environmentally sustainable transportation innovations that can keep up with the growing demands of population growth and urbanization. In short, Bill and his great team are preserving what we've really come to take for granted in this country and indeed around the world, which is the freedom to move effortlessly around the world, thereby enhancing the quality of life for all. Bill, it is such an honor to have you here with us this evening. I cannot think of anyone more deserving of this terrific award. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a hand for Bill Ford, Executive Chairman of the Ford Motor Company. Well, thank you, John, and uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. You know, when uh, John Huntsman got proposed to be on the Ford board uh, a few years ago, I knew, he, he, I knew his resume was incredibly impressive, and, and I knew uh, his reputation was impeccable. But what I didn't know is, uh, what, what I found later, is that he's an even better person. And uh, it's very rare in business to find somebody like John Huntsman and be able to call him a really good friend, and I'm fortunate to be able to do that. So John, thank you for all, all you've done for our company and for, our, for the world. Thanks. My great-grandfather started the company in 1903, and he did it with a vision to make people's lives better. And that's something I've always tried to carry with me throughout my career. Um, 
I joined Ford in 1979 as an environmentalist, and I quickly found out that wasn't a popular thing in the auto industry, um, and particularly back then. And uh, in fact, I was told I should stop associating with any known or suspected environmentalist when I joined the board of Ford Motor Company. Uh, but that made no sense to me. I felt somebody had to build bridges between the communities and not just uh, you know, fire salvos. It was kind of a lonely uh, trek through many of those early years, but it was well worth it. Um, one of the things I'm most proud of is that uh, this, this past year, Ford was named by Ethisphere Institute as one of the world's most ethical companies for the eighth year in a row. And we're the only company like ours to have, have done that. Thanks. Well, thank you. Because to me, there's nothing more important uh, than our culture and our reputation. And our employees, the men and women of Ford, inspire me every day. And so you just know that's not a hollow phrase. When we went through the worst times that I hope I'll ever see in 08, 09, uh, when we were staring at the abyss and our two major competitors, uh, uh, domestic competitors, went bankrupt, I started getting flooded with letters and emails from our employees at all levels, from the plant floor, from our new employees saying, hey, Bill, don't give up. We can do this. And what really struck me is those are normally top-down messages, but they were all coming up to me, and I thought, my goodness, we can't let these people down. Um, and they pulled us through. It was amazing. Um, I, I'll, to the day, I, the day I'm no longer here, I'll always remember what our employees did for our company. And that's something that I think is, is also worth saying, that you know, companies aren't factories. They're not even the products they make. It's the people and their ideas and their hopes and their dreams. And uh, I'm so proud to represent uh, those people. We're on, a, we're on an interesting journey now. Um, uh, Ambassador Huntsman said that we, you know, I gave a TED talk in 2011 about the changing world. And boy, is it changing fast. Artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, 3D printing, they're all here, they're all, they're all coming, uh, and they're all going to be really, really breathtaking. But technology for its own sake doesn't make any sense. You always have to put people at the, at the center of all those conversations and say, how is this technology actually going to make people's lives better? Because if it isn't, there's no point in doing it. And even if it's great technology, if you don't introduce it thoughtfully in a way that actually enhances people's lives, then you really haven't accomplished anything. And when I hear the conversations about all of these technologies, it's breathtaking. But often it's about the technology themselves and not how it's going to be applied to help make this world a better place and help make people's lives easier and give them back their most precious commodity, which is time. So. Um, I'm really excited about the future, and I'm very grateful to uh, this conference for this award. Uh, it's, and I'm very humbled to be in the company that I'm in tonight with the fellow recipients. Uh, so thank you all uh, very much for this, and good luck to each and every one of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Atlantic Council Events Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at atlanticcouncil.org and follow us on Twitter at Atlantic Council. The Atlantic Council, working together to secure the future.